Good afternoon and welcome to Everyday Law. I'm your host, Bob Clark. We're here today with a distinguished celebrity lawyer, Sharon Kelsey. Welcome, Sharon. Thank you, Bob. And as always, the opinions that are expressed on this show are not the opinions of Howard Community College, and we are not giving legal advice. We are discussing legal topics. If you have an individual legal problem, it is vitally important that you contact a lawyer. We're going to check in with Sharon on some fairly serious topics from the start, but I'd like to say from the background that she was an exemplary student, graduated magna cum laude from the University of Maryland University College, and then attended Georgetown University Law Center and graduated from that institution, became a member of the bars of the District of Columbia and Maryland, and has been practicing law for more than 20 years and is presently located in Bowie, Maryland. Quite an achievement, Sharon. Well, thank you, Bob. You certainly had a little hand in that, too. Well, I don't know about that. <laughs> so what prompted you to want to be a lawyer? Well, that goes back to when I said you had a little hand in okay. that, actually. Right. So, um, But I'm going to go way back to fourth grade, uh, uh, Perry Mason. Okay. I used to watch Perry Mason and Della Street and always wanted to be a lawyer. I went to school in Montgomery County, and I was asked to write an essay on what I wanted to be. Long story short, I said I wanted to be an attorney. The teacher looked in the Outlook book that was part of my research, indicating that the field would be overcrowded. And she said, well, it'll be overcrowded. Maybe you should pick something else. It'll oh, be a little, bit, a little tough for you to get in. And so I said, OK. And I started going into accounting. Didn't really care for accounting, kind of floundered through life, working at jobs here and there. Ended up at your good buddy's firm, Ron Schwartz, worked for him as a paralegal. And he says, you should go to law school. And I said, oh, no, they said it would be overcrowded. And oddly enough, he said it's overcrowded for white Anglo-Saxon males. Bingo. It's not overcrowded for African-American females. Did my research, found that was true, submitted my applications. And next thing you know, I was at Georgetown. That's and fantastic. here I am. And that that's turned out well, I think. Full circle. I'm where I was supposed to be. Well, that's a wonderful story. What is your favorite thing that you do in your day-to-day -day work? My favorite thing actually is also my most stressful thing. Okay. What's that? Um, I represent a fair amount of elderly people who have Alzheimer's disease. I am their guardian and of okay, property. Let me stop you there. How do you become someone's guardian? What's the process? Well, actually, you do have to take a course through the Maryland State Bar Association, I believe. It's a three-hour credit um, course that you take. And then, basically, you just get on the list at the courthouse, and then they start kind of feeding you cases, starting out with the easier ones where you just represent them to determine whether there's going to be a guardian first. Those are kind of your in-and-out cases. Okay. And then after that, when you start developing more of a knowledge of them, then they start appointing you as guardian of property. And so that's how you ultimately, you, you, it's appointment. So uh, this might be my naivete, but I always kind of thought of people having, you know, their kids be their guardians as they get older and that sort of thing. Why is a lawyer someone who would be useful as a guardian? It's the kids and the family members that in these particular cases, not all, but they're the problems. I got you. Um, I just got appointed just this last week to a, a case with a 98-year-old husband and a 93-year-old wife, and the adopted son is, has drained out $200,000 out of their bank account, and he's created a power of attorney with false signatures on it, and he's selling off their properties. And, you know, these are the allegations. There's another hearing that's coming up. But oftentimes the allegations turn out to be true, and so they find that either there's a family member that is engaged in this kind of conduct or activity, 
or there are other family members who are clashing, no one can get along. And so the court finally says, okay, well, I, I'm not going to appoint any of you. I'm going to appoint a disinterested person to handle this, these funds and these assets. And then that's where I come into play. Disinterested, not meaning that you're not interested, but merely that you don't have an economic stake, correct? Ex exactly. Okay. And that's why I say it's my toughest job because, of course, you know, the family members are angry, you know, from the start. They're very not, not very happy that I have control over all of their money and what's going to happen with expenses. But it's 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 very disheartening to see what these family members are capable of doing to their mother, their father, their grandmother. I mean, it's 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 just a horrendous state. And and frankly, and when I say it's my best work, it gives me such joy actually to get all the assets and cut everybody <laughs> off actually, and uh, and protect the people who are our most vulnerable uh, citizens. Absolutely. Yeah. So just hypothetically, when you're in a situation and somebody's created fake powers of attorney and sold off their parents' assets, is that something that in any way exposes them to potential criminal prosecution? You know, it's a little dicey there because the court uh, oftentimes finds that they have jurisdiction as of the date the petition is filed. So and a lot of the activities that and the wrongdoings that have occurred occurred pre-filing. Okay. So it's post-filing that, you know, so it's the cleanup and let's make sure we get everything together. And as guardian, if it's really that egregious and I can identify who actually did it, then I can stand in the shoes of the alleged disabled persons and then, um, you know, go back and, and, and find some type of repercussion or whatever um, as far as they're concerned. But uh, other than that, and, and it's unfortunate because sometimes you don't know who did it. Okay. You know, you don't you, you don't know exactly who did what because there's too many hands in the pot, you know, so it, it, it can be a mess. But I'm very happy to um, I had a couple last year that uh, I got and um, apparently they make good money. Fourteen thousand dollars a month. This couple got in retirement. funds, wow. And somebody was meeting them at the mailbox and taking them to the liquor store to cash their checks. And so by the time I got involved, they didn't have a penny to their name. The oh utilities were out. They're living in the house. The way they got discovered is one, both of them, they're in the house, husband and wife. They got Alzheimer's. And so they're in the house alone. They leave the bathtub running and water is pouring out of the garage. And so the neighbors then finally step in and say something's not right and DSS comes in and so on and such and such. Well, you know, that was a year ago. And I'm happy to say that, you know, I've got their house in order, their bills in order, their back taxes in order. And now they've got about $200,000 in the bank because someone's not squandering it away. Oh, my gosh. And they're nicely set in an assisted living facility and doing well. Well, that's a wonderful story. I'd yeah. like to hear something positive now. And then. Yeah. So I was going to ask you what you least like doing in your work, but it sounds like the work you're talking about has both those qualities to it. Yes, it does. <laughs> so just generally tell me what your practice is about. What, what things do you do regularly other than what you've just described? Well, the next biggest thing that I do is I am a contract attorney for the Prince George's County Department of Social Services. And it's kind of in line with that because it's actually child protective services. So okay. I kind of find, you know, and it's funny because when I started practicing law, I said, I don't want to do family law. I don't want to do family law. And I find myself in the middle of family law and, and custody and, and care of, of the elderly and the children. So I guess this is just 
that's where I'm supposed to be. But um, I do the administrative appeals for the Department of Social Services. So when an alleged maltreater appeals a finding of the department, then I represent the department on behalf of the child. Okay, let me stop you there and, and have you translate that into maybe a, a simpler a mistreater is somebody who's doing something bad to the kids in some way, correct? Right. So the first thing we should talk about is it's child abuse and neglect. And so what is child abuse and neglect? Thank you. Child abuse and neglect, one of the issues is child abuse. And it's a physical injury, whether you can see it or not, that is created by some alleged maltreater. So it could be a caretaker, a, a mother, a father, a babysitter, a coach, whatever. And it it's a situation where the child is either harmed or placed at substantial risk of harm. So so let me let me ask you a question about that. If my child's been bad and I want to spank him, does that preclude that, or is it a matter of the seriousness of the spanking, or or in whose eyes are we kind of viewing this? Well, Maryland is one of the few states that still allows corporal punishment. Okay. And you're right. You hit the nail on the head. It's a matter of severity. That's one of the one of the issues. And that's one of the, I'm glad you brought it up, because that's one of those things where intent is not really an issue, because you can intentionally harm a child, you can unintentionally harm a child. So if the child's been bad and you want to spank them, then you're intentionally harming the child. If it's reasonable, if it was thought-provoked, if you're looking at it as a means of corrective behavior, then that's fine in the state of Maryland. When you go overboard, when you find yourself angry and you're wailing away at the child and you kind of lost yourself in the moment and the child is, is ends up with bruises from head to toe, then we go beyond reasonableness and that's when it becomes child abuse. So there's a fine line between corporal punishment and assault, criminal assault. So I would think that the children, if they're getting assaulted regularly by their caretaker, would be hesitant to, you know, turn their parent guardian, et cetera. And how do, how do these, these cases kind of come into view, into public view? Yeah, you're right. Often, you know, and it's a sad situation, but the children, the ones they trust and love the most are the ones they really want to talk against and report out. So um, we get a lot of calls from the school because there are bruises, you know, on the child. Just or, the teacher or somebody at the school observes bruises? Yes. Okay. Um, sometimes it's, a, it's another child. So maybe that child spoke to another child and kind of cried out. And then that child said something in passing or went and said something. And then there's an investigation that starts. So there are mandated reporters at the school system, bus drivers, hospitals. So if a child ends up in a hospital and then the bruises look suspect or they can tell, and I learned this early on, bruises that look newer and older and healing bruises. So they can tell that there's a pattern and it's been going on for a while. And so that's how it kind of comes into play. I would think that that would put pediatricians in a fairly tricky spot in their in their practices. Well, I, I got to tell you, I haven't run into too many pediatricians who aren't willing to make that report. That's and good. like I said, they're mandated reporters. So if they see something, they, they have to make that report. And, and in fact, uh, mandated reporters are by law to be protected. So their identity is not to get out who they are. But notwithstanding that, pediatricians and doctors, they're more than willing to come and come forth and testify if need be and, and let themselves be known that they were the reporter because they're just very passionate. And I guess that goes with their Hippocratic Oath, you know, as well. Yeah. So let's assume that someone at a school observes a child who appears to have bruising that isn't just sort of, you know, I fell down on the playground. 
what is the mechanism that they use to get this this process going and to whom do they speak? So the school fills out a form, the child abuse and neglect reporting form, and they send it over to the Department of Social Services. They call the hotline and there's an intake. And so when there's an intake done, they get all the information and just the preliminary information. And then it gets assigned to a worker and then the worker goes out and does an investigation. And so when they go out to do an investigation, then they talk to the child alone. And a lot of people have concerns with this because later on when they appeal, they, you know, one of the things they want to appeal about is, well, they talk to my child without my permission. Well, that's exactly right. And that's the goal is to talk to the child where whoever the alleged maltreater is, is not around and can't, you know, taint the conversation. So um, so then there's a report made. They do an investigation. 60 days later, they come to a finding of what they believe the ultimate finding is. And there's three different findings. Why don't you tell us what the three are? Yeah. So one finding, and it's not criminal in nature. It's an administrative proceeding. But I'm going to explain it in criminal terms because I think that's what people understand best. Sure. Okay. So the first one... The best one is what we call ruled out, okay? And that is the child lied. It didn't happen that way. We don't think it was that serious. Yes, he got spanked, but not. it wasn't unreasonable. The parent or whoever had an explanation for whatever potential neglect that occurred or if there was an allegation of sexual abuse or whatever. And so that's akin to your acquittal and you're not guilty. Okay. okay. So, so what, how, what percentage of the cases you see is that the case? What's the incidence of... Okay, so I'm going to tell you the other two, okay, okay, and then I'm going to answer fine. that question because that, that leads into okay. something that I, your listeners should definitely know. So the second one is called an unsubstantiated okay, finding. And unsubstantiated means, you know, the child seems credible, the adult seems credible, we're not really sure who to believe, or for some other reason they can't come to a clear finding. And our, our burden is preponderance of the evidence, which means at least more than 50% sure that it happened this way. And so we're going to say it's unsubstantiated. And that's akin to your step dockets or your PBJs. And so that stays in the department for five years. And then if nothing happens, it just goes away. Okay. I would think that would put the child in an awkward position. Sometimes it does. Sometimes it doesn't. I mean, it, it, it just depends on what the situation is. And sometimes the alleged maltreater is gone or they're not a resident of the home or they've been moved out of the home because the department has the authority to actually have people removed from the home as well. So it, it, it just depends. Now, of course, if, if someone was removed from the home, it probably wouldn't be an unsub. I mean, that would probably be the next one that I'm going to talk about, which okay. is indicated. But it just depends on the situation. So the third one is an indicated. And that is akin to your guilty. Okay. OK, again, it's not it's not criminal, but it's akin to your guilty because it's we have enough evidence here to believe that you did what what is alleged that you did. And so we're going to identify you as a person now with a child protective services or they call them CPS history. Okay? OK. And so what happens is your name ends up in a in a place where if someone calls for a CPS history, that it's going to be discovered that you were involved in this situation. And that really affects people who work with children, particularly daycare providers, school teachers, pediatricians, nurses, and sometimes your lay person, because as a parent, if you're labeled with that, you know, a lot of schools and churches, if you want to go on a field trip with your child, you know, now if you have a CPS history, well, the church or the school is not going to risk their liability and allow you now to go on a field trip and be around other children. 
Now, you were talking about the the types of um, cases. And so in the old days, it was every case that came along. It was your belt beaters. It was the kids that got left in the car. They got left in the house. They wandered out of the house. They were, you know, just whatever, sexually abused, mentally abused, educationally neglected, medically neglected. Every case that came down the pike, I got, you know, and indicated. And then they, I would have to look into them. And it's hard to say what the percentage is of the ones that are not indicated because I don't get them. Sure. Okay. So I, I can't tell you. Somebody but I, else can tell me that. Right. But I know that some are ruled out and some are unsubbed and then some are indicated. Now, in the last couple of years, they've come up with this new system called alternative response. And so what they're doing is they're trying to look to cases that aren't so severe to see if there isn't some kind of way that they can provide a service to the family to address the underlying issue and then correct the problem, okay? So what they've done now is they've cut out anything. The only cases I get now are sex abuse, serious bodily injury, and death. Oh, my Lord. So those are the only three cases that I get now. All the rest go alternative response. And then they go into what's called a family preservation unit, and then they um, provide services, and then hopefully that corrects the matter you know, over time, and then it's not a real issue. So there is no indicated or unsubbed or ruled out finding. Wow. That's (laughs) a heavy thing for you to be doing on a regular basis. It is. Does that affect your outlook on the world somewhat? I can tell you when I first started doing this, actually, I started doing child in need of assistant cases in Calvert County, and I was their sole counsel for the more serious cases, everything from when the child was removed to termination of parental rights. And what I did discover was how sheltered I was. I just did not realize what all was going on with our children. And honestly, no. It doesn't bother me because, I mean, it bothers me what's going on with the children. Sure. But I take great satisfaction in knowing that I am someone that is advocating and removing these children from these types of situations. Oh, it's a wonderful thing you do. Yeah. So there was one case that troubled me, and that was a case with a woman who had mental health disabilities. And her child had mental health disabilities. And she couldn't care for him. And and so, I mean, short short story I had to terminate her parental rights because she was more of a danger to him, but it pulled at my heartstrings and it killed me because she loved her son and she was trying her best and she was doing everything she could for this this child, but she was giving him the wrong dose of medication and she was leaving him in the car and she, you know, she was, and she just, she didn't know. So that's the only case really that really just pulled at me. And, and, and unfortunately there was a, there was a slight error and it went up to the Court of Appeals and it came back down and I had to do it a second time. Oh my gosh. (laughs) Yeah. So that was particularly wrenching. But the good news is, is towards the end, she finally got it because she, she was, she was fighting the system and fighting the system, but she got that she wasn't going to win. She gave in. There was a family who adopted the child and it was an open adoption. And so she still has contact and with him and she still gets to be a part of his life. So that kind of made me feel, you know, a lot better sure. you know, about the situation. But other than that, some of these other parents and the things that I see and the things that I go on, I have no real, no, no, no real soft spot. For so them. why do you think these things go on in our society? You know, I would tell you when I was in Calvert County and I first started, there were probably about 50 kids in care. OK, and that was in 2007, 2006. By a couple years later. 
there were over 100 kids in care. But if you can recall, that was a time when the economy just kind of plummeted. And I think a lot of it has to do with money, with jobs, with drugs. Um, people find themselves, and I think because they don't have jobs or they don't have money, then they turn to drugs, they turn to alcohol, then it's abuse, and it just escalates. And the child is the most vulnerable one in the house. And either they get abused, neglected because they're misplaced anger, or because a mother has to go to run in for an interview and she doesn't have anywhere to take her kid for a, to some money to pay for someone to watch the child and she leaves them in the car, I'm just going to be a few minutes. And so, you know, sometimes there's good reasons, sometimes there's bad reasons. And of course, I said, you know, I had no love loss for all these parents. But I mean, obviously, there are exclusions, sure. you know, for some. So it just, it depends. So, so I think it's the economy has a lot to do with it and what happens with the economy sometimes. And I think it's cyclical because, you know, it, it rises. And then as the economy does better, you can see it kind of slows down. I can tell you in the summertime, it's slower because the kids aren't in school for the school personnel to see and hear what's going on to make more reports. So, yeah, sometimes during the, the months between September and June, there's more. Summer, it slows down, picks back up when school starts again. Mm. So it's, it's a number of factors. So it sounds to me like one of the most frequent ways that this is for lack of a better word, diagnosed is through the teachers in the school system. Through is that the predominant or how would you? Yeah. And every now and then with the sex abuse cases, it just depends. Sometimes children make disclosures. I had one recently where the child was in church and they were doing a segment on good and bad touches, you know. And so then the kid finally says they hear that this isn't right or this isn't how it's supposed to be. And then they say, well, that happened to me or, you know, something of that sort. And then it just, you know, it kind of comes out. So, and hopefully you have a parent that is supportive of the child and what the child has said, because like you said, sometimes it can be very damaging to the family when there's an allegation that a family member or close friend did something. It can be very divisive of the family. I can imagine that sometimes it leads to criminal charges too. It actually does lead to criminal charges. And so in these particular cases, when when it does come out and then there is a finding and you say there's an indicated finding and then the parent wants to appeal, well, when there's a criminal aspect of it or a CENA, child in need of assistance aspect to it, then the appeal gets stayed, meaning it gets put on the shelf pending the outcome of the criminal matter or the CENA matter. Because, of course, the criminal matter, the standard or the burden is beyond a reasonable doubt, which is like 100%. So if they can't beat 100%, then certainly they can't beat my 50%. And then it, 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 you know, it just, it stays and my finding is, is affirmed. Okay. So just to be clear, if there is a criminal finding, because criminal cases have to be proved beyond a reasonable doubt, and yet the cases that you're talking about just have to be proved by more than 50% of the evidence, the criminal finding kind of subsumes the regular procedure and it's just it's done as it were exactly now if they if they're successful on the criminal end and they they were able to not be found guilty beyond a reasonable doubt then my case reopens and then the administrative matter is still heard because and then the question is can i meet my 50 percent so someone didn't meet 100%, well, can I meet 50%? So it's very possible, and it happens frequently, that you may not have been found criminally responsible, but on the administrative level, you have been found responsible. 
So you mentioned the concept of terminating parental rights. What does that mean? Now that goes into child in need of assistance, and that's when a child has been removed from their home and the department has engaged in reunification efforts, and those reunification efforts have not been successful over a period of time, then that's when they start looking to terminate the parental rights so that the child can then be adopted by another family and or Sometimes it's guardianship by another family member or custody or just whatever it is. But for adoption purposes, termination of parental rights is required. So that sounds like that's sort of a multi-step process. Yes. And it takes years because reunification efforts, in, in between that, there are permanency hearings every six months to see how the parents are coming along. So it can be upwards of two years or so before someone starts talking about termination parental rights. There are some circumstances where they can talk about it right away. But if you're giving the parents an opportunity, it's about two years before they start going in that direction. So is there anything that you would suggest to families that are having difficulties to kind of nip this in the bud or reduce the likelihood that, you know, the child will have the parental rights terminated? Or, I mean, are there things you could suggest constructively for families that are having trouble? In that case, which is more the center route, um, it's work with your worker. I mean, you know, whatever the issue, the underlying issue is, the root cause is, you need to work very hard to try to eradicate that, whether it be drugs, whether it be alcohol, whether it be anger management. Sometimes it's getting employment, getting housing, which all things the Department of Social Services can assist with. And so if you work with that, in addition to being a regular part of the child's life, visiting on a regular basis, and showing yourself serious about, you know, your family nexus, then that's something that can ultimately help you avoid termination of parental rights. I know from talking to other lawyers that there are times they feel the Department of Social Services in any given jurisdiction is not the friend of the family, that maybe they're overly aggressive or they're not very understanding or that sort of thing. How do you view the Department of Social Services generally? I think they have a fine line to walk. Obviously, they're very committed to the safety of the child, and that really is their prime directive, is the safety of the child. But at the same time, the state does require that they engage in reunification efforts. And I think that the Department of Social Services workers are committed They're overworked, they're understaffed, and they're working very hard to try to get families together. And I think a lot of people come in upset because they have already a view of their circumstance and the social services worker is the last straw. They're the one who removed the child. So, you know, people will misplace their anger and and, and so now it's the worker that really is the issue. But I think they work very hard and I think they're very diligent. And when things are not working out, then they have to have a firm hand with respect to the parents as well. So, yeah, they, they walk a fine line, you know, protecting the child, thinking of the best interests of the family. And, and when it can work out, they're very happy that it works out. Uh, we actually have in Prince George's County a reunification ceremony once a year where the Department of Social Services is part of that celebration of families who have reunified. And they give them a basket and, you know, just different organizations will contribute movie tickets or just little things to put in there so that they can be a unit and a family and, and try to put whatever was a problem past them and move on from that. How successful have you found reunification to be historically? Again, I don't keep up with the statistics, but sadly, sometimes it's less likely than not. Okay. 
So is there anything you can suggest for people just out in the world to help children and to help families in dealing with these things, maybe recognizing signs of abuse or moving in that direction? Well, to the people who are listening, I mean, I think you don't turn a blind eye and you pay attention to your surroundings, pay attention to your children. I mean, I know we all kind of live in a society where we drive out of our garage and drive back in our garage and, you know, we're in the house and we're not really looking. But there are kids out there who are depending on people to be observant and to know what's going on and, and to not be afraid to call. And anyone who wants to call, they can know that they can call and it's anonymous. Okay, it is it is a crime to let the identity of the reporter be known. So you're totally protected if you think that something's going on. And I guess it goes back to the old saying, if you see something, say something. Okay. Is it your experience that when things get into a serious case that there have been multiple people who have reported signs of problems? No. Okay. Usually just one, a teacher, a doctor, uh, that kind of thing. Yes. Usually once you get one call, the department has a, a identifiable period of time where they have to respond. And so I think for physical abuse or I think for neglect, they have like five days. If it's physical abuse or sexual abuse, they got to be there in 24 hours. So the situation gets addressed pretty quickly. Okay. So as a final happier note, uh, we were talking with Matt here earlier about all of our love of music. And Kendrick Lamar came up with his new, I'd call it an album, his new disc. That's right. And we were all kind of talking about how wonderful it is that music is a bond and that all three of us here have common interests and differing interests in music. And what are your musical interests? My musical, as I said, and, and, and shout out to my daughter, Sam, and my daughter, Sydney. They both love Kendrick Lamar. We love all kinds of music. I love country music. I love R&B, pop Latino music, merengue, I, I can sing any jingle on the radio, I mean, you know, on the TV. I just love music, period. It just, it, It's just good for my soul. Well, I'd like to thank you very much for appearing today. This has been Everyday Law. I'm your host, Bob Clark. We'll look for you next time. All right. Thanks, Bob.